In this episode, I talk to Tom Selby. We talk about AJ Bell and compare notes on our respective experiences of working for a successful and growing platform business. We talked about the gender pay and investment gap, the budget and pension tax reform, complexity and simplicity, and the Treasury's reverse ferret on the normal minimum pension age. We also did a quick dissection of COP26 and green investing. I hope you enjoy it. How many of these have you have you done so far? We are now recording. Tom, you're my first. <laughs> Is that how we're going to start it? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good intro. Welcome to the Lancat podcast, Tom. Thank you. Can you give us a quick introduction about yourself? Yes, sure. So my name is Tom Selby. I'm the current head of retirement policy at AJ Bell. That's a role I took on quite recently. Prior to that, I was senior analyst at AJ Bell, so the investment pensions platform provider. Before that, um, I had a, a former life as a financial journalist. So I was a, a hack for, from about 2009 until 2015, 16. So kicking off in professional pensions, then went on to money marketing, the trade publication where I, uh, I stuck with pensions and then and then became head of news before moving over to the, the dark side, as it were. How far out was that a plan that there was this kind of idea that uh, one day you'd make the transition from journalist across to sort of in-house PR spokesman specialist uh, type role? Tom, you, you know me well enough to know that I very rarely have a plan. It was, it was something that I had thought about, I guess from around... 13, 14-ish, I, I remember having conversations with colleagues and friends in various London establishments. And, and actually, without without blowing too much smoke in your direction, I always remember thinking that the way that you and Leith Hargreaves did communications in terms of being the spokesperson and being the PR person, but also being the expert behind it and really owning the subject matter was was the right way to do it. And it always surprised me that fewer organisations did that. And so when, when AJ Bell approached me with the opportunity to do something broadly similar to what mm. um, what you guys at Hargreaves have been doing for a long time it was it was always kind of attractive and it came at quite a quite a good time for me I, I think I'd, I'd reached I'd reached a point in in journalism where I was kind of reached a managerial level I guess and it yeah. was becoming a, a lot more spinning plates and a lot less chasing stories so so that was kind of how it came about really that's that's one of the inevitable progressions, isn't it? If you get too good at your job, someone makes you a manager and then it stops being fun and you stop yeah. doing the thing you, you started doing that you loved and you just end up running people. And that can be a hard transition for people, I think, can't it? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't my favourite thing, managing people, I've got to say. I, I, I like people generally, but yeah. I, I prefer, I really, really liked being a journalist and talking to people in the industry and actually, yeah. and, and also, and well, one of the great things about my job now is not that not only do I get to talk to people like you and others in the industry, but I, I also get to talk to actual people in inverted commas, so customers, um, we do events and things like that. So I feel like I've got a, in a way, a, a, maybe a better sense of how people are, are feeling on the ground than perhaps... I would have done even when I was a, a journalist, because obviously being a trade journalist is a very specific environment where you get a feel for what advisors are thinking and you might get a feel for what advised clients are thinking, but you don't necessarily get a feel for the wider wider market and in particular DIY investors. So it's 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 been a very interesting transition. Do you, do you now have that direct connection? You go out and you actually talk to the end investors, clients of AJ Bell. You're not just talking to intermediaries, is that right? In, yeah, so in, in different ways. So I still um, write 
columns and things in trade articles and we do communications via invest center so the advice platform to advise customers and they're obviously still an incredibly important part of aj bell as, as a business but i also do various talks at events that are organized by shares magazine which is the magazine that's owned by aj bell i, I write a weekly a weekly column where we get questions from people in so questions from actual people in obviously we have to be careful in terms of making sure that the the answers I provide are, are general and guidance yeah not advice yeah that's actually been a, a, a very interesting part of the job because we kind of started doing that and we were it really really was a bit of a leap in the dark in terms mm. of are oh, is anyone going to write in and ask questions about pensions to to me that were and, and questions that will be interesting enough and non-specific enough yeah. that we can we can answer answer and actually it's been it's been really good we get lots and lots of questions and there's people are incredibly interested in retirement and getting guidance and things like that far too many questions about the lifetime allowance for my liking <laughs> frankly. Um, but we also get various things on you know, the complexity of the tax regime and, and you know, ways to save and, and all that kind of stuff. So people are, are crying out for information. And uh, I think in, in, in a lot of ways, they're just not quite sure where to get it from. That kind of stuff keeps you real as well, doesn't it? It keeps your feet on the ground if you're staying connected mm. to that reality check of what it is that people actually care about, what you're rather yeah. than what you think maybe they care about. Yeah. So... I mean, AJ Bell's been on a bit of a transition since mm. you joined the company. And one of the things I saw at Hargreaves, because I joined a, a company that was only a couple of hundred people, and it turned into this kind of big FTSE 100 business with a couple of thousand people uh, getting mm. on for that number by the time I left. And, and that was a really fascinating experience to see that from the inside, to see a, mm. a company go through that transition and learn how to behave like a grown-up business and AJ Bell's been I mean you, you you've been there for less time but you've seen some of that and you've gone through the flotation and I mean what's the market cap now one and a half two billion it's a proper big business now so just I mean how's how's that affected people in the business what changes have you seen there through that time yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a, a fascinating period to be at AJ Bell, and I feel very lucky to have been there during that period. Strangely, I think although the main thing I think that has changed as a result of the flow is that people do view AJ Bell as a perhaps more significant business than they did before, and I think more people are, are aware of AJ Bell's existence. Um, from an internal perspective, very little has changed, actually. A lot of the company have been preparing for a while to be a, a listed company, so a lot of the, the ways that things were, were reported and a lot of the internal structures were set out in, a, in the way that you would expect of a publicly listed company. Mm. So all of that stuff kind of didn't change. Um, in terms of the culture, I think Andy and the, and the senior team have always been very, very big on culture and they've been and were very keen to ensure that the culture that they had built prior to flotation was was retained post flotation and certainly from my perspective and I think from from the perspective of the vast majority of employers they've they've been successful in in doing that so I think I think it's been it's been a good thing in terms of ensuring that AJ Bell's name is is out there and people are aware of it and I, I'm sure from a corporate level there are, there are certain reporting disciplines that being a, a listed company um, is positive for, for but from a from a day-to-day -day business it's kind of a boring answer but it's very much been business as usual yeah no and I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear you say that mm. and one of the things that struck me with HL in the immediate aftermath of the flotation was that you had a lot of fairly young employees people in their 20s guys working on the help mm. desk and 
everybody got a little bit of a slice of the company and you mm. could feel the difference that made where all the employees were suddenly share owners in the business. Mm. And I remember very clearly how that just changed the mood a little bit in a really positive way. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of employees having a stake mm. in the business, not to an Enron level because you can overdo things. But, <laughs> um, but I think that buy-in of collective endeavour can, can be really powerful. Yeah, and and, that, and that's something that I think AJ Bell has, has embraced, and all and all employees have had the the opportunity to to buy into the company through um, buying shares through pay as you earn and things like that. So it's it, it, I think I think you're right. I think in terms of uh, ownership among the staff, I think I think AJ Bell always did have that. I think people always did feel like that they, they were part of something more than just a, a nine to five. Job certainly a lot of people feel like that anyway, and but you're right, having a slice of the cake can only increase that. Well, I find, I mean, Andy Bell, who I mm. first met when I was working at Torquil Clark, and it would have been mm. around the year 2000. And I find it kind of interesting that that, that business that Don Clark was running, where I'd set up a, a direct pensions business mm. for him, that didn't really achieve the growth that we hoped for at the time. And there were the differences between Torquil Clark and Hargreaves Lansdowne and AJ mm. Bell were not big, but they were clearly quite material. And I remember meeting Andy at the time and being really impressed with him as an individual. And I find it interesting that you know he's like Hargreaves Lansdowne, like Peter and Stephen at HL. You know, he's gone on to, to turn this into a really big, proper grown-up business, very successful. He always struck me as a good guy at the time. I, I find it interesting that he's... So everything you said about the culture mm. kind of resonates with me. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. I'm also interested that he's clearly quite happy at times now to stick his head over the parapet and get involved mm. in issues. When, he's, when he feels like something needs saying, he's very willing to say it. And I've, I've mm. seen some of the letters he's written to politicians or to civil servants. You know, he's good at that stuff, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, he's, he's, very, he's very straight talking and I think that helps I, I don't know if that's a, something that comes from being northern um, or <laughs> if it's something that comes from his background I think he's very down to earth he's also one of the one of the interesting things about Andy is how invested he is in everything to do with AJ Bell whether large or small so right. when I first joined I went to meet Andy and Billy Mackay who now yeah. is the uh, runs Invest Center and Charlie Musson who yeah. who leads the PR and comms operation which we met in a just a pub in near Tottencourt Road which is near my, where my old office was yeah. I was kind of I've met Andy a few times I played five side football with him a few times and things like that so uh, we were on kind of speaking friendly terms but I, I'd, I'd never kind of sat in a pub with him and, and I'd certainly never been about to be his his employee so yeah. I didn't I didn't know exactly what to expect and within five minutes, I think, of us, us getting our round of lagers in, Andy was asking me whether I thought videos on the U Invest website should be three or three and a half minutes long, okay. um, yeah. which I didn't really expect for the chief executive of a large platform to have any interest in whatsoever. But he was certainly in terms of the, the direct-to-consumer business, which was growing, I think the advice business was quite mature and was kind of there and, and, and runs itself. And, as, and it's fairly clear what that's what that's doing. The, in terms of the direct-to-consumer stuff, he was really, really interested in that and really focused on trying to, to make it as, as good as it can possibly be. But I think that is a fairly consistent 
consistent mark of successful leaders. And I think about people that I've worked with who've been successful, people like Adam Norris at Hargreaves Lansdowne, mm. Peter Hargreaves. I think about military leaders I've read about, you know, Marlborough, Wellington, people like that. That, that does seem to be quite a consistent thing is that mm. preoccupation with getting the details right and a curiosity about why, you know, right down to the, the smallest stuff. That seems to be a common characteristic of people who've gone on to build successful enterprises. Yeah, and I think a, dr- a, dr- a drive to achieve something beyond wealth or riches or, or, yeah. or money or anything like anything like that. I think there was a period before I joined um, AJ Bell where I think there were, uh, Andy was considering whether or not to slow down. And I think he attempted to do it, uh, to, to kind of take his hand off the, the wheel for a period of about 12 months, 18 months. This is way back, in, I think, in the sort of early 2010 sort of thing. And, right. um, Quite quickly, he realised that that wasn't for him. And so he came very much back to the helm and he's stuck there. And I think it's because, I suspect some of that, without attempting to speak for the for the man who pays my wages, mm. I suspect part of that is because he's got his, his, his name's above the door. You know, this is AJ Bell. This company is literally named after Andy Bell. Mm. And so I, I think that can only add to the drive of someone like that to stay involved and to keep pushing the business forwards. And I was really interested to see Helena Morrissey coming Mm. into the business. I was pretty high profile signing Mm. and I was really interested in the work you guys have done around, around the gender gap and like, which, which, which we all know exists. So, you know, the pay gap and the, the investment and wealth gap is to some degree, the pensions gap is an inevitable mm-hmm. consequence of the, of the pay gap. It all stems from the differential new earnings. Mm-hmm. But some good data came out of AJ Bell around the differences in, in women's savings rates. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about, I mean, first of all, like how, how close have you been to that work? Have you been, have you been directly involved in that? So th- that work's been, been led by Helena Morrissey and Laura Souter and a couple of other people internally. So in terms of what that piece of work is, the aim is to give women more information and to engage women in, in investing and saving for retirement and, and all, the le- all the rest of it. So I'll, I'll be involved in terms of writing. I'll be writing art- articles. I'll be doing podcasts and, and other bits and pieces on the side. Um, clearly, as, as you mentioned, the, we've, the, we've got this data. There's various surveys that have been done that say women. Not, it's not only that the women tend to have less in investments and less in their pensions than men, but it's. I think that for me, the key thing is they tend to be less engaged as well. Now, that may be a corollary of the fact they tend to have less in their investments and pensions. And I think you're you're right that when as as, as women's pay equalizes hopefully with men over time then i think the amount that they have saved in pensions the amount they have invested should improve but as we kind of move forward with that then the the key is to try from my point of view anyway is to try to ensure that women and everyone is engaged they can possibly be with their their investments and their pension savings and all the rest of it so i think Part of this inevitably is the maternity penalty. Mm. Is you know there's that cost that women bear, where it, it's very hard to bridge that gap entirely because of the characteristics of motherhood versus fatherhood. And so I wonder whether the gap will ever be bridged entirely, and maybe that will always be a thing. Or maybe society, you know, we've seen a significant equalisation in things like paternity leave now mm. and, and the the sharing of responsibilities more evenly. I'm not sure whether that gap will ever be entirely bridged. So that's, that's one aspect of it. And then the other bit that kind of interested me here is you talked about the engagement piece mm. and whether 
is that down to how the industry communicates? Is it just because communication is written by men for men and so we talk badly to, to, to women and, and so mm. they don't engage? And I, I just wonder when your thoughts on, on both of those points. So possibly, yes. So, I mean, you know as well as I do that, that certainly the financial services industry and the, and the pensions industry is well, has traditionally been, been dominated by men and certainly in the senior positions of organisations there would mainly be men there. And so as a result, the messages that all investors are getting are taken towards men and the vast majority of investors of course would be men as well so perhaps that's mm. that's a natural thing and i think that's that's partly what we're we're trying to do with with money matters is have senior inspirational knowledgeable women at the helm of that campaign directing that campaign showing women that investing isn't something that's just for men isn't something that should just be done by the husband or whatever the family unit is it's it's something that we all need to be engaging and and, and helena you know with her career and her nine children i think it is and still Mm. you know this fantastic high profile career and all the stuff she's done around the 30 percent club i mean she is just the epitome of that isn't Mm. she yeah exactly i think she's she's the perfect person to have at the top of the tree kind of pushing this forward and as as you say i think it's doing that as much as it's AJ Bell's way of doing as much as we can as a provider to help, you know, our customers and to help wider society. Clearly, there are the main differences that are going to be made are going to be at a structural level, and they're going to take years and years to happen. As you say, things like things like parental leave and the, you know, the, the fact that women tend to be more likely to care for elderly relatives as well than, than men. Those are bigger issues that clearly aren't going to be solved by communications. Those are things that need to be solved through through government policy and through changes to the to the way you know society cares for younger people and cares for older people but i think we see it as as our role to do as much as we can in terms of engaging and hopefully inspiring more women to to take an interest in saving for the for the short and the long term and then hopefully over over time those structural changes will happen but as as you say that's all very uncertain and we may not reach a point where men and women have similar levels of investments and, and pensions and salaries even in even in our lifetimes yeah yeah no i'll I'll be really interested to watch how that work progresses and in particular what insights you can bring back to the marketplace, particularly on things like the communication and women's attitudes to investing and and, and what resonates with them and what doesn't. I think that's really good work you're doing there. So I wanted to touch on the budget and your thoughts around that because, I mean, first of all, politically, it was kind of a bit weird You know, there was that final paragraph where he seemed to contradict everything he'd been telling us for the last hour, which was (laughs) which was just weird. And I guess there was some politics going on there. But Mm -hmm. from the industry point of view, there was no big moves on CGT or on IHT. Mm -hmm. The ice from pension allowances were left alone. I mean, like apart from a bit of saucy fiscal drag, which just kind of so he'll came a little bit off the top through that. But Mm -hmm. but nothing, nothing major there. And he tidied up the net pay anomaly for the workplace pensions. And generally, and as interesting, you mentioned the, the lifetime allowance just now, because again, you know, we could do with some tidying up there, but he, but he didn't go there. And it, the whole thing felt like the industry had just kind of dodged a bullet a bit. We'll just, we'll just carry on what we're doing then, shall we? I mean, how, how did you find it? What was your take on all of that? Yeah, uh, so I, I, I've done, done more budgets and, and on statements than I care to, care to remember now. I think it must have averaged about two a year in the last 12 years or something like that. But it, it felt like one of the more predictable budgets a little less rumor and speculation around things like tax relief than beforehand mm. i wonder if that was perhaps because the briefing had been a little more 
solid this time around than previously. And when I say solid, I mean actual press releases sent to journalists way ahead of time with all the details of every single announcement that's going to happen. Whereas the tradition in inverted commas has been to to float ideas around, for example, scrapping higher rate relief, get a load of blowback and then quickly change your mind at the the last second. So we didn't get any of that, which I think is a good thing. Mm. Um, I think it's good that we didn't have that rumour and speculation. I I inevitably think that there will be more rumour and speculation the next time there's a major fiscal event because whenever there's a government that needs to raise money and there's a vacuum of of space and a, and a lack of avenues to get that money, then you're going to end up with rumour and speculation around pension tax relief. Yeah. I think that's just going to happen, unfortunately, unless there was some sort of commitment from a government to to say we're going to keep this this system as it is. And um, why uh, would they do that? No one's going to do that. And, and even feel, then, if, as soon as you get a change of government, they're not going to be bound by that. Although although yeah, we saw it with the public sector pensions reforms, where now whether or not that was a, a sensible thing to do, and I think we've seen with the McLeod judgment that perhaps mm. it wasn't the most sensible mm. thing to do, while those kind of commitments in a way are impossible and can't work and you can't bind future governments, I think if you make that sort of commitment, then there's at least a, a chance that it'll stick. Now, whether or not any any government will want to bind itself in terms of raising revenue over the long term from a specific source, I guess potentially not. And you would have to have a get out of a get out of jail free card if things turn particularly south from a from a fiscal perspective. But I personally think it would be good if we had some sort of some someone in government saying it would be a good thing if the pension tax rules were kept roughly similar for a period of time and if perhaps we could make things simpler as well. Um, But in terms of the budget itself, I guess a lot of the big pension stuff had already been announced, hadn't it? So we knew that the the state pension triple lock was going Mm. to be scrapped for for a year. We knew that the lifetime allowance was going to be frozen until the end of this parliament. We... um, as I say, we never, there wasn't really anything around pension tax relief, which I think most people usually breathe a sigh of relief of, for, particularly in the pensions industry. Um, we got the normal minimum pension age stuff yeah. afterwards, so yeah. expecting or hoping for that in the budget, but it just took a, another month or so, obviously a couple of weeks or so for that for yeah. that to come out. So, so yeah, no big surprises, all quite predictable, really. Yeah, and no, we'll come back to the, to the normal minimum pension mm. age in a moment. Just staying with the tax relief thing. Mm. So you seem to be hinting there, can we just have some stability? I think that sort of sense of continuity and predictability and, and not being disrupted every year. I mean, look at the lifetime allowance, a number of layers of protections we've now got in place on that, which is just all makes it harder to communicate with people and for people to plan. Mm. At the same time, I'm conscious that there's a lot that's not very effective about the tax relief system and things like the lifetime allowance, never mind the way that the high rate relief is allocated, mm. the amount of money that goes to DB schemes, you know, the, the sheer incomprehensibility of the system for most ordinary people. Mm. So there's that tension there. Yes, can we have stability? But also, yes, could we change quite a lot of it as well? <laughs> and, and, you know, at some point, surely... Some politician, some chancellor, when they've got the political capital to do it, as George Osborne nearly did in 2016, surely they're going to get it all out on the table again? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wondered if the if now might have been the time to do it, given mm. the crisis that the country's Never facing. Never waste a good with, crisis. With yeah. coronavirus, there was clearly a, there was a pretty clear window there for a, yeah. for a chancellor to look at some you know, radical reform of pension tax relief. And it, it would make the front pages, but it might be away from the front pages after... 
after a day or two, um, yeah, I, I see the the innate contradiction in asking for both a simplification of the system and stability in the system in the same breath. But my, my view, and, I, and I, this is a view I've held for a long time, my, certainly as the pension tax relief system has become increasingly complicated, my view has been that we, you, you need to start that process off by looking at ways that you can simplify the rules so that normal people can understand the way that pension tax relief works. You know, you look at the a system where you've got an annual allowance and a lifetime allowance, but actually you don't quite know what your annual allowance is because it, it's either 100% of your earnings or, or £40,000. But then if you're a very high earner, your annual yeah. allowance might actually be somewhere between £40,000 and £4,000. Yeah. You have no idea what it is. And if you flexibly access your pot, then your annual allowance is actually £4,000. And over your lifetime, you can save just over a million. But it might not be just over a million because you may have protection. And you think if you I don't know, if you came down from, from space and you you said, right, I want to organise a, a system of tax reliefs and a system of caps to encourage people to save for retirement, there's nobody in their right mind who would come up with anything even vaguely close to what of we course. have at the moment. And it's, it's kind of what we saw with the, the state pension system before the flat rate was introduced. And obviously, we still have a lot of those complexities in, in place. You see complexity build and build and build over time, and it's successive governments, and it's individual changes that happen, perhaps for the right reasons. But once you do lots and lots of those individual changes over time, you end up with with some with Frankenstein's monster, with something that's just so horrific that nobody can understand it. And, and, my, and my issue with the complexity of the pension tax system is that while a lot of this stuff might only touch the wealthiest people, hmm. it all has to be explained to everyone because everybody could be affected by an MPAA. Anybody could be affected by the lifetime allowance. Their wages might go up significantly from one point to another. Everybody could be affected by the annual allowance at one point or another as well. So I think it's a, a tricky place to be when you can't tell someone how much they can save each year and how much they can save over their lifetime in two sentences. And it's quite a tricky place actually now where we're in a position where we can't even tell people when they can first access their pension pot because of the changes in the MPA and some of the complexities that's going to introduce as well. So that's a very long-winded way of, of me saying I think it's all very complicated. It's far too complicated. And I think if, if we could get some simplification to, to start with, that would be a good thing. And then if we could get to that point, then perhaps we could start to look at, look at stability. Well, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I was struck watching the DWP committee hearing mm. on Monday. I thought Guy Opperman as he often does, gave a really solid performance, absolutely on top of all his facts, on top of his brief. He argues, well, you know, the guy's a barrister. It shows he's really mm. good at this stuff. I was struck by the way he characterized his term as a, as a government minister, his term in office at the DWP, as one of simplification. He was joining the dots and saying, look, I'm doing the simpler annual statements mm. and I want to do the statement season. And we could maybe talk about that in a minute. He's doing the midlife MOT. He's bringing in the dashboard. The overarching narrative here is he's making pensions simpler and more accessible. But obviously he's in a DWP. He's not in the Treasury. Mm -hmm. So he's not, you know, he doesn't get to do the tax stuff. But I think that mm. that philosophy, that approach, that mindset is, is absolutely what we need a bit more of. Mm. And so in that context, it was, as you say, really interesting to see the, the normal minimum pension age stuff, which, mm. which they simplified a little bit from where they started from. 
And to my relief, and I've, I've spoken to HMRC about this, my understanding is if you've got a pot with a 55 tag on it, you happen to have been lucky enough before midnight on the 3rd of November or whatever it was, you happen to be in a scheme that has a 55 tag on it. If you transfer that money, and crucially, if that money gets transferred for you, perhaps as part of a small pots consolidation mm. exercise, so it might not even be with your consent, that 55 tag goes with you. So that's mm. good news for you. You you know, we can still do things like small pot consolidation. We can still move money around the system. It's not a barrier to market competition, but it does mean the data tracking for product providers mm. gets more complicated because you at HA Bell are going to have to keep a record that this bit of Tom's money is 55 money and that bit of Tom's yeah. money is 57 money. And the communication of it, you, you know, when, when AJ Bell writes to Tom and says, mm. this is your money and this is what you're entitled to, or when you log into the dashboard, that complexity is going to make communicating with people harder. Is I mean, is that where you ended up with all of this? Yeah, yeah, you summed it up quite well, I think. Um, I, I think the whole consultation process was slightly bizarre. I thought the Treasury did a good job of uniting everyone in the pensions industry and saying that what was being proposed wasn't a, wasn't a great idea. Um, I, I agree with you. That that the, the closing of the joining window, so reducing that from the 2023 to the 4th of November this year, is a decent reverse ferret from what was a very, very bad position. But equally, it's, it's that thing, isn't it, when you get offered something absolutely terrible and then someone rows back a bit and it's just terrible and everyone starts setting off party poppers and saying it's brilliant. And you think, well, actually, it's not a great outcome from something which genuinely, I think, I would say 100% of the pensions industry thought this was going to be an administrative exercise. I don't think anybody, I I certainly didn't go into 2021 thinking that the thing I was going to be talking about most was a normal minimum pension age, because frankly, it shouldn't be that important. The vast majority of people shouldn't be going anywhere near their pension at age 55 or 57 unless they're in they're in ill health or they're or they've got debts or they're, they're, they've got very specific circumstances. So all of this blood, sweat and tears that's been put into trying to get us into a vaguely average position on increasing the normal minimum pension age when everybody assumed, and I think understandably so, everybody assumed that the Treasury was just going to increase it to 57, as they'd said they were going to do, is frankly ridiculous. And, we're, and we are potentially, I mean, and, you know, with, without without jumping the gun on what anyone may or may not do, the, the Treasury does risk leaving itself in, in the slightly awkward position of being incapable of raising the normal minimum pension age ever again. Because mm-hmm. if every scheme now, and I don't know, I don't know what AJFL is going to do in relation to this, and I don't know what anyone else is going to do in relation to this but clearly any scheme if they wanted to could now hardwire age 57 into their scheme rules why wouldn't you yeah and 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 the precedent's been set around that and so presumably the government's going to want to increase the normal minimum pension age again as the state Mm. pension age goes up that's supposed to be the plan and because of the way should in my eyes anyway have been a very simple task has been overcomplicated. we've we've ended up in this situation where potentially the government's going to be hamstrung from implement in its own policy. Well, no, I absolutely agree. And you make a very good point about the age 58, which, mm. you know, should happen, all, all other things being equal. And I was interested by the argument that this isn't just down to pension rights, this is down to property rights. And that's why the Treasury mm. has bent over backwards to accommodate people being able to retain the 55 if they at least nominally had a contractual right to take their money mm. at 55 So I was surprised that the Treasury was so determined 
to hardwire mm. that 55 thing into the system and to give people that protection. But the argument I've heard is that this was a legal thing. If they had not done it, then it would have opened all kinds of legal challenges on from a property rights point of view. Yeah, I've heard that as well. I've also, I've also heard that they weren't they weren't willing to share the legal advice that they'd they'd had on that. So so who knows? It seems it seems it seems to me from a common sense point of view to use to use a slightly overused term that if if the government isn't able to implement government policy anymore as a result of illegal rights to what to, to be able to access their, their pension at a certain age when that when it's clear it was very very clearly signaled what the government was intending to do in 2014 mm. i think it was when they first said they were going to increase the normal minimum pension age then the system's not working particularly well but i'd say i'm not i'm not i'm not a legal expert I, I, my my knowledge of property rights is zero but it would seems a bizarre position to to end up in that you essentially can't implement the the policies that you want to implement. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those pesky lawyers. <laughs> Let's not go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> so look, um, I'm, I'm also really interested in, I mean, AJ Bell has, has a privileged position in the marketplace. You transact through intermediaries, you transact mm. directly with consumers. There has, of course, been a huge amount of attention on the environment on COP26 mm-hmm. and this the FCA shoveling out papers on an almost daily basis at the moment around sustainability disclosure requirements and investment labels. And clearly, we have the government's roadmap to sustainable investing. There's clearly a lot more to come on that front. So I guess I've got a couple of questions on that. One is, I'm really interested to know how you see the role of platforms in this space because there's been a lot of focus on the fund managers and a lot of focus on getting companies to report their own data, the you know, the, the end companies that the fund managers invest in. There's been quite a lot of focus on on sort of product managers, but less so on the platform. So I'm interested in your thoughts on all of that. And I'm also really interested to get your thoughts on on just on that question of consumer demand and engagement with this question more generally and how up for reorganizing people's portfolios along more environmental lines people actually are yeah so i think there's two two questions are kind of linked in terms of the role of platforms i think certainly a lot of what we've been doing in terms of launching esg label funds sustainable funds has been driven by demand from our customers and i and i and i actually think you're absolutely right that there's been lots and lots of stuff coming from the fca and from dwp as well in relation to to workplace schemes but i think progress on esg on esg esg reporting on on having you know tools and content that's that's linked to environmental mental social and, and governance factors is going to be mm. Is going to be driven by people, people who use pensions. I think that certainly younger people tend to be more focused on on ESG issues than perhaps other demographics. Those are the those are the customers of the future. I think as we see um, automatic enrolment, building people's pension pots to a size where they start to engage. I think as a hygiene factor, people are going to expect all providers of of pensions and investments to factor in ESG factors into the products that they that they offer and the and the services that they provide. And so I think this is one of those things where while we'll get lots and lots of stuff from regulators and government mm. on it, I think I think actually providers need to be doing stuff anyway. I think most providers will end up going above and beyond what's been mandated by by regulators and, and government because that's the way the market's moving, it's the way sentiment's moving, it's and it's and it's what people want. And of course, there's a growing body of evidence that you get better outcomes in your investments if you factor in environmental, social and governance yeah. factors as well. So that's part of it. I think there's an there's an interesting debate to be had in terms of 
measuring how environmentally friendly something is, how socially good something is, yeah. and how good something's governance is as well. I know that there are, you know, I've been asked to, to comment on various tools that have been launched by different providers in, in relation to this. And I think, you know, the DWP is looking as well at ways you can, you can benchmark how good a company is in terms of uh, what it does in a social setting. But all of these things are, are pretty tricky to, to kind of put a number on. You know, you can't, you can't look at one company and say, this is eight out of 10 on an ESG rating and this company's four out of 10 on an ESG mm. rating because one person would flip those two and have them the other way around. Perhaps one company is perhaps not environmentally friendly at the moment, but is making lots of changes to become environmentally friendly. And in yeah. that case, you would want to make sure that people are being encouraged to invest yeah, in that punish company because it's doing too. the right thing. Yeah. So uh, I, I, think, I think all parts of the sector are going to be taking certainly environmental factors, but also social governance factors much more seriously in the coming years. I think it's going to, there was, there was a period of time where it felt like one or two days a year, there'd be a bit of debate around ESG and why why aren't more providers doing more on ESG and why aren't people investing more in, in ESG when there's data that's in, in environmentally, socially governance friendly funds, when there's data out there that suggests that these funds can outperform the, uh, those that are doing less good things to the world. And actually, I think now we've reached a point where it's solidified and I think various things have, have gone into that from, as you say, from COP and some of the environmental disasters that we've seen over recent years to to, to things like COVID. I think people are now recognising that now is the time for this stuff to be inherent in everything that providers do and in everything that fund managers do as well. And I think there's there's going to be no going back. No, definitely agree with that. I was struck by some research that Parmenian came up with mm. just just a fairly it was a it was part of a webinar we were doing and they did a poll and it highlighted that the overriding barrier from advisors point of view the thing that scored highest by quite a long chalk you know big big margin was they had identified the lack of consistent definitions and data uh, in comparing solutions so i think you know that that's consistent with what you were just saying that it's that measurability and comparability that still hasn't been nailed and i think looking at everything the government and the regulators are doing it feels like it's all coming and if we have this conversation again in about five years time you know we'll probably largely have worked our way through all of this but it does still feel very much like a work in progress at the moment yeah yeah it's just it's just it's, it's just inherently really difficult isn't mm. it it is a, you know when you when you get into the point where you're trying to measure something that may be philosophical what is good and mm. what is bad you're never going to get to a place where you have perfect answers and perfect affect measurability of it but we can certainly improve from where we are at the moment and i'm sure you know there will be tools and different things that are being developed and are perhaps already already out there that at least aid investors in in coming to decisions about where they invest their money i was trying to listen to a webinar whilst on a train which you know okay. certainly certainly in england is just not going to work <laughs> and i think the statistic that they threw out and i really want to check this i've tried googling it subsequently and i've got to have to find a way to verify this because i thought it was a really powerful one. The suggestion was, I think, mm. that greening your investment for portfolio can be up to 21 times more impactful than mm. getting an electric car. 
Yeah. I mean, if it's true, that's a, that's whoever did the research on that, you know, take the afternoon off. That's a great piece of work because if it's right, that just kind of puts things in perspective about how important the role that we have, the role that AJ Bell has, the industry mm-hmm. has in, in making change, just how important that is and actually potentially much more impactful than just everyone going out and buying a Tesla. Yeah, I think where these you know, pension funds, whether defined benefit, defined contribution, all those managed by platforms, where that money is is directed is clearly has the potential to have a huge impact on the behaviour of, of companies. And I think the, the government is understandably focusing on the automatic enrolment market and, and default investment funds in particular, because clearly that's that's where most of the, the asset been going in in recent years. And that's where, you know, where most of the pension money is. So it makes it makes sense to focus on, on that part of the market. But yes, when you when you consider the, the size of the assets in, in pensions overall across the UK, then that's where real big change can be can be made if it can be if that money can be corralled towards things that are you know environmentally friendly that are socially good that are, have, have got have good governance practices and all the rest of it but it's i think it well, the one thing to say is it will take time it will yeah. take a long time and i think it probably will never be perfect either yeah and we don't have that much time do mm-hmm. we so. <laughs> oh wow <laughs> on that cheerful note i think so that I, it went a bit dark there sorry that wasn't meant to be so i mean i think i think there's a lot of good progress being made so hopefully hopefully we'll bring it all around i will just say on i mean having spent some time looking at low carbon transport and i'm working, mm. working on electric bikes i'm you know teslas are not the answer i mean they're great technology but they're not going to save the planet I, 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 don't, I don't know if you plan to have a large advisor audience for this but um that might yeah <laughs> don't, i don't Wanting to financial advisors have a Tesla, according to recent yeah. reports, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, no, so um, no, I'm aware. <laughs> and, and look, they are. I mean, I, I've never owned one. I've been been for a ride in one a few times. They are really cool vehicles, right? Mm. But they're not going to solve the climate change crisis. But we'll save that one for another day. <laughs> Tom, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for walking through all of that. I really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. Cheers, Tom. Thanks. <laughs>